0: I'm going to read Acts chapter 11 from verse 1. Then the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all of your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized, with water. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Um, I'm going to pray and then Rowan's going to speak to us, but just so that you know, we're going to have a short question time at the end of the talk today, so be writing down your tough questions if you think of anything as Rowan speaking. Um, Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful day and for this chance to be taught from your word. Please let Rowan speak clearly and faithfully now and help us to listen well and be changed. Amen.
1: Thanks, Christy. Last week we started looking at a little section in this book of Acts in the New Testament, and we're going to complete that little section today. And, but before I launch into thinking about the bit of the story that we just heard about Peter and Cornelius, I wanted to just, a moment, to try to uh, orient you in the reading of the book of Acts. That is, when you're reading the book of Acts yourself, sometimes it's hard. It's a reasonably long book in the New Testament, 28 chapters. That's not long by sort of normal reading a book, like literary standards. These chapters are pretty short chapters. But still, it's a big book. And so, sometimes it's easy to get lost when you're reading a book. And when Luke wrote it, he didn't put in chapter numbers and verse numbers. That was added by some monk hundreds of years later. Uh, and, you yeah. know, maybe the monk is a good job, maybe not. But working out where to put the chapter divisions. If you go back to sort of just take those out, think, how was Luke himself structuring his narrative? How is he structuring that book? That will help you as you try to read it yourself. So, so I'm going to take a moment now just to tell you how I think the book fits together once you take out the chapter of verse okay? So, what you see in the book of Acts is how does it fit together. Acts chapter 1, is the launching point, right, as you would expect. Now, you've got to remember that Luke wrote not just the book of Acts, he also wrote the book, the Gospel of Luke. It was a two-part work. So Acts chapter 1 is the hinge between volume 1, Luke's Gospel, and volume 2, the Acts of the Apostles. So in volume 1, all about Jesus' earth birth, earthly ministry, about his death <coughs> and his resurrection as the Christ, the Lord of all. Acts Acts chapter 1 starts with Jesus, having been raised from the dead, says to his closest followers, the 11 apostles, he says to them, you will be my witnesses, as you can see from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses now in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, surrounding areas, and to the ends of the earth. That's sort of the programmatic statement that sets the, the trajectory for the rest of the story, the rest of what happens in the book of Acts. That's the launching point. Got that? Now, if you then read the rest of the book of Acts, what you'll notice is, how does Luke structure the story? You can tell when he he has a particular phrase that he reuses at a particular point as a type of summary at key moments. It's repeated three times. Here it is. He says, so the word of God spread. This idea of the the spreading of the word of God is repeated three times in the book. Once here in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, again in chapter 12, where he says the word of God continued to increase and spread, and again in chapter 19, he says the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The idea here is that these are his summary statements saying, Jesus has set it up in chapter 1, he said, you spread this message about me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth, and three times Luke sort of pauses in his narrative and says, and the word of God continued to spread fitting in with what Jesus had said and all up to do. Does that make sense? Then the question is right, well what's happening between these summary statements? How does the, the, the story, the Luke, the history that Luke records, how does it grow? Well what you can see is in the first couple of chapters, between chapter two and chapter six, what they are doing, what Luke reports for it, is that they are proclaiming this word about Jesus to the Jews who are living in Jerusalem. That's what happens for those up to sort of chapter six, verse seven. The message about Jesus goes out in Jerusalem, as Jesus had said. And then Luke has his summary statement. So the word of God spread. Then what happens straight after chapter 6 verse 7, straight after this, is you're introduced to um, or the persecution that has been happening in these chapters, reaches is a bit of a high point, with the death of Stephen. Stephen being the first Christian martyr. That's the very next thing he relates. And then as a result of Stephen's death, he says, and the Christians were driven out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, which is where Jesus said they would go, and they're proclaiming the message about Jesus as they go. And so, this whole next section between chapter 6 and chapter 12 is all about persecution driving the word of the proclamation of the word into Judea, Samaria, and to the Gentiles. Now, this is the section we've been looking at last week and this week. Last week, we saw how persecution drove the proclamation of the word into Judea and Samaria when we looked at uh, Philip preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch and how uh, Philip, um, his ministry. But then this week we are going to be seeing how, through the Apostle Peter, the message comes to the Gentiles. At the end of that whole section, Luke has another summary, word of God continues to increase in spread. What happens then after that? What you see then is the, the focus shifts. Up to this point, Jerusalem has been sort of the centre. Once you get to chapter 13, Luke shifts his focus and says, and a Christian church was established in another place called Antioch, and Antioch becomes a bit of a base for Christian proclamation about Jesus all around the Mediterranean, particularly the north of the Mediterranean. And so, chapters 13 to 19 shifts this focus, the church in Antioch is a base proclaiming the word about Jesus around the Mediterranean. At the end of that, in chapter 19, he said the word of the Lord spread widely in power. And then what happens in the last section? Well, straight after chapter 19, verse 20, Luke records how Paul, one of the apostles, decides he's going to go to Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, he's going to go to Rome. And then chapters 19 through 28 are all about Paul doing exactly that. Going to Jerusalem, proclaiming the message about Jesus as he goes. And then Jerusalem, he gets arrested and it ends up being sent to Rome to appear before Caesar for his Christian faith and proclaiming the message about Jesus all the way up That's how I think Luke has structured his whole book. And the reason I give that to you is do just so that when you're reading the book you can actually sort of make sense of what's going on, what's the... see the forest, if you like, not just see the individual trees. Does that make sense? All good? You got that? Written it down, taken a photo? Useful, future reference? Gone. Okay, right. What we have read for us today, though, was where Peter, one of the apostles, proclaimed the gospel to a guy called Cornelius. You can see a painting here that I've got. Cornelius, to I clear from the text, is was a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. You can see him in his painting. That's why he's wearing the Roman sort of officer apparel here. And this is actually about Peter baptising, as we've heard it in the story. The thing about the Cornelius story is, up to this point in the book of Acts, literally thousands of people have become followers of Jesus. At different points in time, Luke said, you know, and thousands of people came to faith. So, thousands of people have become followers of Jesus up to this point. And yet, the Cornelius story is mentioned four times in the book of Acts. Luke makes a really big deal of this story about Cornelius. He narrates the whole event in chapter 10. Then in chapter 11, because it causes such a ruckus that Cornelius has become a Christian, he has to tell the whole story again. That is, Peter has to tell the story when he gets back to Jerusalem. So that's what we heard in chapter 11 of him narrating the story to the fellow believers in Jerusalem. And then when you get to chapter 15, there's still such a, such a ruckus over the fact that a Gentile can become a Christian that Cornelius' conversion is mentioned twice in chapter 15 as the Christians try to sort out what exactly is going on. So this moment where Cornelius becomes a Christian is a really big deal in the book of Acts and in the history of the early church. So our question really is, what is the big deal with Cornelius? Why is it such a big deal? It's mentioned four times in the book of Acts. It's also actually, may I say, a big deal for you. Cornelius, the fact that Cornelius became a Christian is a really big deal for you. Because what happened here with Cornelius, if you like, it sent shockwaves, ramifications, down through history through 2,000 years of history. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, it has caught you up in the shockwaves from this event. What happened here is massive in the plans of God. But you'll only get why it's such a big deal if you understand the big picture. To understand why common conversion was such a big deal, you need to get the big picture. Of how this moment, where this God and his household became followers of Jesus, how that features in the bigger plane of God. That's what I'm going to try and communicate to you in the next little while. To do that, I've got to tell you the big story. God's big story. You know, the whole of the Bible. How is it all like So, yeah, I've got a few pictures I'm going to share with you to so try and do that. Here we go. Here you are, down the bottom here, here are all the nations of the world. All the nations of the world. Is every person who lived, ever lived, will be. Everybody down yeah. here. The nations of the world. Right? What the Bible tells us is that every single person who has been created by God, every single person who has been created by God in his image, every single person is deeply loved. That's what the scriptures tell us. Every single human being created by God in deeply loved by Him. However, it also tells so right in the earliest chapter of the Bible, is that the human heart takes the freedom that God has given us, the freedom with which you credit, and we take that freedom and say, thank you God for the freedom but no thanks. I'm not going to let you be God in my life. Thank you very much for what you've given us, but you can just now take a back seat. I'm going to use the freedom to assert my independence of you. Now, that independence that we try to assert from God, it is actually deeply immoral. Because for us to say, as creatures, we've been lovingly created by your powerful God, created us in his image, and when we say, Thanks very much, God, now get stuck. That, that sort of that is deeply immoral, actually, Let's say that to our loving spirit. So but that's because our hearts are hard, right? Our hearts are hard towards him. We've taken the freedom he's given turned it around and said, You just stay out of my life. And consequently, because that is deeply in it, it lands us under his just judgment. So, how do you describe the state of humanity? Yes, all nations world. We have hard hearts. We are under God's just judgment. And yet, we are to not by him. That's our situation. What was God going to do about this situation? He doesn't want us to be love. So what's he going to do about this and what he did about it? Here is Abraham. Here is one particular guy who came who God chose out of all the people of the earth, out of all the nations of the earth he chose one guy, Abraham. And he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise. Right, you got your Bible there? we go into to Genesis chapter 12? We're just going to look at a few quick passages. Genesis chapter 12. If you haven't underlined this, if you're a Christian and haven't underlined these couple of verses in your Bible, you probably should. They're super useful. I mean, all the Psalms words are useful, right? But just these are really key. These, these are sort of programmatic verses that set the direction for all of God's story of salvation. I'm going to read in chapter 4, verse 1 of Genesis. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And here's the promise God makes me. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Two particular things I want to focus on out of that promise he promises that Abraham will be the father of a great nation. That's a pretty big promise. Like if I said, you are going to become the father or mother of an entire race, an entire political people, a nation. I can see some of you smiling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right. That would be a good thing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Repent of your megalomania, right? <laughs> It's a big promise. You are going to be the father of a great nation. Okay? Secondly, and all the other nations of the world, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you and your descendants. It's a massive promise. This is God's big plan.
0: What do you then see? Well, as time goes on, Abraham does indeed become the father, the, the ancestor of a great nation, known
1: as the people of Israel. His descendants end up in Egypt. Um, many, many, many thousands of them end up in Egypt. God rescues them out of Egypt to fulfill his promise to Abraham, to bring them to a particular land under the leadership of Moses, you might know, through the Exodus. These people, Israel, God makes a particular promise to them. So, next little passage, link forward to Exodus 19. And let's look at the little promise, little promise, the big promise God makes the nation of Israel as they came to Exodus 19, another couple of verses worth underlined. Verses 4 and 5. This is what the Lord says. He says to them, "You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now." If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be in my treasure possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a king of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're over speak to the Israelites. What's his promise there? Well, first of all, it's a command. Keep my covenant. Keep this this Formal relationship is agreement that I'm establishing with you. You need to keep your side of the bargain. In particular, that's articulated here in a whole set of laws they were to keep. So the Hebrew word for law is Torah. You might have heard Jewish friends talk about the Torah. Torah just means law. He wants them to keep the Torah. Keep the law. And, one sort of particular aspect of the Torah, showing the going to be to our story about Cornelius, is, you know, as an example, they were to keep a whole lot of food laws. There were certain animals that they were not to eat. God just, God said to them, you ought to make, you ought to show the rest of the world that you belong to me by keeping these particular food laws. I am saying, for you, don't eat, and he has a whole list, and you can read it, in letters, but for example, prawns were prawn wow. He's saying, I want you to not eat prawns, as a sign of dedication to me, as a sign of marking you out as my people from all the other nations of the world. He gave them all sorts of food laws to keep the markman of the holy nation. That's a nation separated from other nations because they belong in, to him, because he was their God. He right. gave them a whole lot of laws to keep. So you can, if you like, in our little diagram here, I've sort of put the Torah here, the law, as a bit of a a bit of a um, boundary marker. It sort of defined who the people of God were. So because they kept the Torah. It marked them out. The way they expressed their love of God, the way they expressed their faithfulness to God, was keeping His word, by keeping like his, his Torah. And so it separated them out, marked them out as people of the Now, remember the promise to Abraham: <laughs> You will be the father of a great nation. Okay, we've seen that. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. How is this going to be a blessing to the rest of the nations? Well, what you see, if you fast forward, we won't look this one up and you can down a little bit later, in, as the uh, New Old Testament goes on, when you get to place like Isaiah 60, you can see that part of God's plan was that other nations would flow in and join Israel. Other nations would join themselves to the Israelite nation. And become Israelites, and in order to do that, they would keep the Torah. That there would be an inflow from the nations into Israel, which we call a centripetal cent- tra- mission. centripetal is the opposite of centrifugal. You've got a centrifugal. If you have a school site where they if you have those sort of Things you clam onto the bench with little worldly things, and they put a quick little parachute in, and you have, and it flings around, and really your aim is just to think that I actually do this so fast they would fly off and smash against the wall. You didn't do that, anyway, And it flies out that like that. Centrifugal going out, people is gone. is flowing in. The model in the Old Testament is centripetal mission, so that the nation would blow in and. Become Israelites. They would join themselves to Israel. And they would do that by, they would mark that by coming Israelites, they would therefore start keeping the Torah. That's what it meant to be in Israel. Does that make sense? That's the picture there in the Old Testament. Now, I've just covered the whole Old Testament for you, right? How it all sort of works. Now, question is, when Jesus walks on the scene, Jesus the Christ, the one that the Old Testament was looking forward to, the the person who would stand at the centre of all of God's pain and purposes, when Jesus walks onto the scene, what difference does he make to this picture? What does Jesus do to this picture? Now, the fascinating thing about this little story we've been reading with Cornelius is this. It's apparent when you read the story that the Christian thought Jesus did one thing, but they were wrong. And God has to correct their misunderstanding of this stuff. So, in the story, you can see what the early Christians thought and how it was wrong and how God had to correct it. So how did they think Jesus fitted into the picture? Look look how they thought Jesus fitted into the picture. They thought Jesus, well, Jesus is the Christ. They were right with that. He's the one at the centre of God's plans. So if Jesus is the Christ, the one that God has promised, Clearly what you need to do now is put your faith in Him. You need to trust Him. He's the Christ. They were right on all this. That's good, right? But they still thought, these early Christian believers, coming out of a Jewish background, they thought you still needed to keep the Torah. The law still was the marker that defined God's people. You can see this in the story in a couple of different places. Have a look now at Acts chapters 10 and 11, put the Bible there, you can see a few places. Uh, When uh, Peter gets back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11, you can see there, I'll read the first two verses, the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, that is Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, Criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men, that is Gentiles, and ate with them. Why is that so horrendous? Why is it so horrendous for someone with a Jewish background to go and eat with somebody who's a Gentile? To go into their house? Well, when you go into their house, it's not like when like, I come to your house, right? Like, I come to your house, particularly if you've got sort of an anglo-saxon background, like, I come to your house, I would be lucky to get a glass of water. Like, frankly, we, just don't even, we, we don't understand hospitality at all. We're so selfish and so self-focused. We don't think about, you know, whereas, if you come from a different culture, I come to your house and you are going to lay it on. You will me food and more food and more food and drink, and if I, I, I won't. For me to say, oh, no, thank you very much, I'm on a diet, would be highly offensive to you, wouldn't it? you just got to eat it. That's what you do, right? Similarly, in those days, right? If you, as a Jew, went to a Gentile's house, they're going to sort, like, give you all sorts of food. What sort of food are they going to give you? Are they going to give you food that's kosher? A cook that has been prepared according to the Jewish food laws? No. So you're going to have to refuse it, which is rude. So what's the best option? Don't go there, or you're not going to eat it because that will make you mutually unclean. So you can see that they're going, Peter, You've got a Jewish background like you're Jew. You went into a church what the heck are you doing? You must have you've gone against the Torah. These are Christians, right? These are Christians who are talking to each other. And you can see Peter himself originally thought that too. Go back to Acts chapter 10, the very beginning of the story. Verse 9. About noon, the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, he went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open on something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners that contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles on the and birds of the air. You're thinking, hey, great, I get to eat some wombat, and I get to eat some gecko, and I get to eat some chicken, right? No, so no, he didn't go. These are unclean animals. I know from the Torah. I'm not to touch these animals. I'm not to eat these animals. But the voice says, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter thinks to think it's a test. He says, Surely not, Lord. Peter replies, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. But then the voice says, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. That must have rocked his mind heard that. Now, then I say, no, do not call impure anything that God made clean. please. What? God made is clean. He doesn't get it because it happens three times. He keeps coming back to the same answer. He doesn't get what God's trying to him." Then at the end, verse 17, while people was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius, the Gentile, found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out after Simon and had known that people were staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And when Peter gets to their house, have a look if you go, go a bit forward to verse 27. You'll see that Peter finally joins the docks. It wasn't just about food, see, it's actually about the people, it's about Gentiles, what God is doing. Amongst the Gentiles. Verse 27 Talking with Cornelius, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for you to associate with the Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sinful, I came without raising any with objection. You see, Peter worked out, oh, actually, well, God, sorry, through the vision, through the Spirit speaking to, him, that actually it's not that you now can become a Christian by having to keep the law as well as putting faith in Christ. So you realize that actually this is the situation. Now, do you get what's different between these two pictures? the difference, right? This is the actual situation. That's what they thought. Okay? Right? What's the difference between the two pictures? There you go. Okay? The difference is. What has happened to Torah? The radical thing that Jesus coming as the Christ has done is that he has brought the era of the Torah to an end. That was the point of the vision. God has made, not just these two, but God has made these people clean. Don't call them a What God has made clean. By coming to faith in Jesus, they are made clean. They no longer need to keep those Old Testament rules. So that law, that Torah, all of it has not of the people, all of it come to an end with the coming of the Christ. So you can see Paul later in say Romans chapter 10 saying, Christ is the end of the law. He's the one to the law point, but also he's the one who brings it to its completion, its full and stop now. So that Old Testament law is no longer the marker of God's people. Its era has come to an end. So consequently, we proclaim Jesus to all people, but put their faith in Jesus, and that is how they join of new people of God, from a Jewish or the Jacobite. Does that make sense? Have you really got that story? Got it pretty clear? So what? All very interesting, okay. Luke, Luke tells this story, or has it mentioned, four times in the Book of Acts, four times mentioned. Clearly a big deal for Luke. What's the so-what for us? Hand up, if you're happy Hand up if you have a Jewish background or uh, marriage. And unsurprisingly, like, it's actually not very common that these days, if you look talk to Christians in Australia, there's many who have a Jewish background. Most of uh, us, if you're a Christian, Come from that uh, Gentile, a non-Jewish sort of background. We sort of look at this story and go, Well, yeah, like obvious, uh, like, of course, you could just you just put your faith in Jesus. But that was a radical cool moment for them. Right? And it, interestingly, it wasn't that God was suddenly doing something different with Cornelius, it was actually that he'd done it in jesus in jesus death and resurrection jesus death and resurrection was the moment that that Torah came to an end but it took a while for god to actually have to intervene and help the christians to work it out that actually the consequence of jesus coming was the Torah cornelius was that moment where finally it clicked under god's gracious hand and that has said through human history that if you're a christian now from a general background guess what his story is your story, isn't it? You've had exactly the same experience. You've come to faith in the Lord Jesus, and you have received the Spirit, just as Cornelius has received the Spirit, because the receiving of the Spirit is the great mark, and you are part of God's new covenant. So what's the so what for you? Very interesting in the story. What's the so what in the story? Have a look at the end of chapter 10, where the story is told. There in verse 46. How does it end? They heard Cornelius and his household speaking in tongues and praising God. How does it end in chapter 11 when he tells the story? Verse 18. When the people in Jerusalem, the believers in Jerusalem heard this story, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Where the story ends. What, how you should respond to this, how we're meant to respond to this, is praise God for his mercy. Praise God that though we are from the Gentiles, though we, we were part of his whole company, he's actually allowed us to become part of his people. And the difficulty is, you and I take that for granted. We just go, oh yeah, sure, you can come push That is a big deal when you understand all of the scriptures. In fact, flip with me to Romans chapter 15 you can see how once you realise how radical it is that Gentiles are now part of the people of God, you start to see it everywhere in the New Testament, because it is everywhere in the New Testament. Romans 15, Paul sort of erupts in praise over this fact. Romans 15, from verse 8. He says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. I don't know if you noticed there, but it's sort of like, frankly, Paul. Paul's seeing my diagram. It's pretty much like Paul's seen my diagram here. Because fully, he's just, he's touching all my bases here, right? He's saying, look at it again. That Christ has become a servant of the Jews, on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises to the patriarch Abraham, was the first patriarch, right? So that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. You can do the same thing in the Gent- uh, Galatians chapter three. Actually, it's fully just you know taking the diagram and putting it in the words. Okay, it's impossible possible? Maybe I got the diagram from thinking about. The gospel, right? <laughs> <laughs> but notice then what he said: as a result of that mercy, that' been shown us. It says, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will send hymns to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and send praises to him, all you people. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. Again and again, the message of New is, Once you get what happened, once you get how God's been merciful to you at the job you praise him.
0: Dear Father, we do thank you that we can be made clean because of your son, Jesus. Lord, you've embraced us as part of your family, and that's only possible because Jesus has opened up the way for all people to receive the Spirit and follow him. And we thank you for your great mercy in doing this. Um, As we go out this week, please help us to grasp the real significance of this wonderful mercy and to pour our praise to you in response. Amen. The only thing.
1: more. Mm-hmm.